This is the last in our series on um, questions of canon at the five o'clock service. And if you've got your new Revival Times, you'll see the new series that are starting uh, both at the 2.30 service on Walking in Integrity next week, but also here at the five, the School of the Spirit, Principles of Walking in the Spirit. Now, here at the five o'clock service, it gives us an opportunity to um, teach on different subjects that you might not normally teach at a larger regular congregation. Uh, People might not be that interested in some of the topics that we go through. But it's important in a church ministry to cover the, preach the whole counsel of God. And I think that sometimes some of the topics that we teach at the five o'clock service, every single Christian needs to hear what's being taught. And we're not just teaching it for the people that are here today, although that's primarily what we're doing, but also on the internet we have people later on in the week that that watch the series on the five o'clock service all the way around the world so they can keep this teaching input in their lives. We have series that people can go back to and and say, hey, I want to learn about these things. So what we try and do at the five o'clock is tackle some issues that need to be tackled, whether they're popular or not, we're going to, at the five o'clock, make sure that the whole counsel of God is there. It's there for people that need it. And so we've been looking uh, over the um, summer, we were looking at the family and the Bible's teaching on the family. Uh, We've now been looking at a question of canon. How did we get the Old Testament? How did we get the New Testament? And next month, we're going to be a little bit more practical in our teaching. We're going to talk about what it means to walk in the Spirit. And that title seems very sort of, I don't know, ethereal, spiritual, walking in the Spirit, being filled with the Spirit. But the majority of God's people do not walk in the Spirit on a daily basis. They may try and live a moral life, or they may ask to be filled with the Spirit when they lay hands on someone. But the principles of living by the Spirit, or in the Spirit, are absolutely the opposite to the principles of living in the flesh, which is worldly living. And unfortunately, in the church today, at all different levels, from ministers and leaders right down to new believers, people have a veneer of Christianity, but the actual principles of putting spiritual principles into action on a daily basis at work, in your family, in your marriage, very few Christians actually do it. They just have a certain type of morality, Christian morality, that they they try and do better than others. So in the next month, and maybe in the month afterwards, we're going to really look at what it means to be a spirit-filled Christian. I think you'll be surprised at some of the things that we're looking at, some of the attitudes, some of the actions that a spirit-filled Christian does that, that, that proves that they're spirit-filled. So these are some of the things that we're going to be looking at as, as we go ahead. But today, we are going to be looking at the subject of the God of the Old Testament. Um, last three Sundays, last Sunday, we looked at how the New Testament came to us, how it was gathered to us, 
uh, how we know the books in the New Testament come from God. They weren't made up by some church council. Uh, right from the beginning, the New Testament books were recognized as divine. This, we looked the week before, and these are all up on the internet, on our website. If you want to have a look at them, we looked at how the Old Testament canon came together, how many of the Old Testament books overlap and refer to one another. Tonight, I'm going to be starting a new evening series on Joshua. And we see that the book of Joshua overlaps with the Pentateuch. They are, they are linked together. And so we saw how the Old Testament developed and how it was the Word of God. And today what I thought I would do is just because I, have, I, didn't, I didn't know how long it would take to get through some of those introductory principles, I wanted to have a look at some of the questions that, and some of the attacks against the Christian faith uh, in regard to the God of the Old Testament. You know, Richard Dawkins, the new atheist, or the champion of new atheism, he says this about the God of our Old Testament. He says, quote, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. Petty, unjust, unforgiving, a control freak a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynist, a woman-hater, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, killing sons, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent, malevolent bully. I can hardly say all these words he's got. So that's Richard Dawkins. That's his summary of the God of the Old Testament. And I've found, as maybe you have today, that one of the uh, uh, attacks that people have on our Christian faith, one of the first things that comes up is, well, you call yourself a Christian, yes, and I'm ready for the attack. And I've found that more and more the attack comes from an attack against the God of the Old Testament. Oh, well, you believe in the Bible? Yes, I do. I believe it's the Word of God. Oh, so you believe that we should execute homosexuals, that we should stone adulterers, that if someone turns from their faith, a child turns from their faith, they should be killed by their parents. You believe in slavery. You believe in a God that tells Abraham to kill his own child. And, and, and you believe in, in a God that sends Joshua and the and the people in the promised land to genocide and kill all the Canaanites. And, and you believe the weird God who says, eat this food, but don't eat that food, and don't plant the same seeds in the same field. And I mean, I mean, and the idea is that we are believing in some crazy kind of God that doesn't make sense at all, that's really a, a, a myth and has been made up, and is quite a, a, a nasty character. I just want to give you a few introductory thoughts about that because uh, what they're saying is really twisting the evidence that they have, but unfortunately many Christians don't have a clue even how to begin to answer such queries. Now, a book that I would um, in, encourage you uh, to get hold of if any of this you find interesting and you want to go greater in depth because I can only really highlight certain things today is a book called, Is God a Moral Monster? Making Sense of the Old Testament, God, by Paul Copen. But the, the title you need is, Is God a Moral Monster? By Paul Copan, C-O-P-A-N. 
Now, let's just take a few of the arguments that are here. One of the first arguments that the new atheists and their followers say is that the God of the Old Testament is arrogant, selfish, jealous, and self-centered. According to Richard Dawkins, God is obsessed with his own superiority over rival gods. He's a jealous God. He can't stand it if anybody is worshipping anybody else. He's like one of these, you know, X-factor winners who suddenly is out there in the media and can't and is constantly looking to see how many people are viewing their, treat, their tweets or liking their Facebook. And as soon as some other singer comes up, they get jealous and they become like divas and, and they can't stand it because it's me, 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 me. And Richard Dawkins says that the, the God of the Old Testament is like that and that he even saves his people from Egypt for the sake of his name. In other words, they say that the God of the Old Testament really is the most self-centered person you could possibly imagine because when it's to do with Yahweh, they say it's always about me, about Yahweh. Now, you, you'll hear this, but I want, I want to say that this is a totally false understanding of the God of the Old Testament and indeed who God is. It's a false understanding of pride and a false understanding of humility. And what Dawkins is doing is he is pulling God down and treating him as if he was an individual just like you and I. Now, can you imagine, don't please, but if I started to come out and started to say, you shall have no other preachers but I. I am the greatest preacher, and if you go to any other service or any other church and listen to any other preacher, then I've got a problem with you and I'm going to destroy you. I am the greatest. Sound like Muhammad Ali, don't, don't, don't I? And if I started to go, you'd say, you've got delusions of grandeur. Who do you think you are, Bruce Atkins? You've got an inflated opinion of yourself full of pride. Well, this is what Dawkins and the rest are saying about the God of the Old Testament. But there's one big difference between God and me. I'm a human, and he's God. And so when God talks about himself and who he is, he is not bragging about something that he's not. He is actually, you know, when we talk about pride, pride is a false, unrealistic view about yourself. So when you find somebody who's full of pride, they are inflated, aren't they? They have what we call an inflated opinion of themselves or their own actions. What they're talking about, about themselves, is not true. It is not an accurate portrayal of who they are. They're full of pride, full of arrogance. They're not half who they think they are. But when God talks about himself, God is everything that he says he is. God is the creator of all things. All things in the universe were created by him and also for him. There's nothing arrogant about that. Every breath that we take, we take by permission of God. The, the Westminster divines in their teaching of new believers and their catechisms had a number of questions. And the first question you learned as a new believer or a child uh, in the Puritan times being taught about the scriptures was you would answer questions with answers. That's how you learned. And the first question is, what is the chief purpose of humankind? Or what is the chief end of man? And the answer was this. The chief purpose of mankind is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. 
So our very being and essence, the reason that we're alive is to give praise to God, to give glory to God. Not to give him praise that's not due his name, but to accurately reflect through our worship, our preaching, our prayer, our lives, to accurately reflect back to God who he is, how great he is. Think of all the songs that we sing, how great is our God we are. And we talk, don't we, in worshipping about magnifying the Lord. We're not magnifying him out of proportion, but we are simply saying who he is. When we worship God, when we praise God, it's not like some X-factor person that, that everybody's got some sort of hero worship. It is true that today we have this fascination with heroes of the media. It's crazy. It's gone mad. They're put on pedestals. I mean, I just thought, is there something wrong with me or has the world gone mad when I found that Posh Spice is now a UN ambassador? What, what qualifies, what qualifies um, David Beckham's wife to be a united uh, ambassador? What quali- what, what's she done for that? Well, she's famous. She's famous. The world's gone mad. It's magnifying someone out of proportion to who, to who they are. There's plenty of other people that would do it. She's got her fame, of course. That, that might help and draw attention to certain aspects. But, you know, just because you're famous, just because you're a musician, just because, well, people are being given greater credit than they should. God is not fishing for compliments or needs an ego boost. God is totally self-sufficient. When we praise and worship him and honour him, it's out of gratitude. In fact, worship is good for us. Worship allows us to get a sense of perspective on our own lives. Because we can become self-obsessed. The problem is not God being self-obsessed. The problem is with people like Richard Dawkins and ourselves being me, me, me. Worshippers of self, as the Bible says. Too busy thinking about me. In fact... Some of the worst Christianity today in the modern West is a me-centered Christianity where you fill churches by preaching sermons that are all about you, all about your potential, all about how you feel, all about your hurts, all about your... You, 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 you. As if the world and God are centered around you and your needs. Whereas the Bible actually teaches that you and the world are centered around God. What we need more than anything today is God-centered preaching, not man-centered preaching. And when we are God-centered, and when we are focused on God for who he is, you find that everything else in life falls into place. You get a perspective. It really isn't about you. It really isn't about me. It really is about God. And when we understand that and give him the honor and glory that's due his name... Everything else falls into perspective. When they say that God is a jealous God, the Old Testament God was a jealous God. But the way that they twist this meaning of God being a jealous God is, is they, they, they use it in a negative connotation of arrogance. But God's jealousy is the jealousy of a concerned lover. The jealousy of a concerned Husband, He's full of anguish and dismay when his covenant people go after other gods. Why? Because he is jealous and insecure and needs attention? No, 
Because he knows that when people go after other gods, that they are headed towards personal destruction, anguish, falsehood, and darkness. Time and time again in the Old Testament, it says that God is like the husband and his people are like his bride. Uh, even Jesus is the bridegroom, isn't it? And the church is his bride. And God is constantly seeking his, his, his bride of Israel to come back to him, but his bride is constantly going after other gods and committing spiritual adultery. You know, what sort, what, what sort of marriage would be considered a good marriage? Or what sort of husband would say to his wife, you know, you go off with anybody you want, whenever you want, however you want, it doesn't matter to me. Would that person really love his wife and cherish his wife if he was to say, you do what you want? You'd say, hey, you know, that's not healthy, but a husband that's jealous over his wife and vice versa is loving, protective, not all jealousy is bad. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, we find that Paul was, was jealous with godly jealousy over the Corinthians. He could have said to the Corinthians, you bunch of flesh pots, you arrogant, self-centered, non-loving, gift-chasing bunch of people. Go on, I don't give a hoot about you. Go on, take a hike. You know, I don't want anything more to do with you. I'll start again and plant a new church. But he didn't. He said, I'm jealous over you. I won't let you go that easy. And the Corinthians were in a terrible mess. I won't let you go. I'm going to chase after you. I'm going to discipline you. I'm going to watch over you because I love you. And this jealousy is a God-given jealousy. And so we see that when people attack the God of the Old Testament as being self-centered, that they're pulling him down and making him like a human being. It would be inappropriate for a human being to, be, to, to, to claim the things that God claims. It would be inappropriate if Jesus was not fully God, as well as fully man, to claim the things that he's claimed. That's why when you go to Jesus, you can't just... You can't, you can't just say, oh, he was a good moral teacher. He never claimed to be a, only a good moral teacher. Jesus was either who he said he was, the son of the living God, the word made flesh, that's who he was, or he was a liar, or he was a raving lunatic. You can't have a fourth option. His claims of who he was, he accepted worship from Thomas. You see, for a human being to accept worship, if you're just a human being, is out of place. But if you are God in the flesh, to accept worship from people like Thomas is absolutely appropriate. The next thing I want to quickly have a look at is the idea that the Old Testament God is a child abuser. I remember a couple of years or so ago, um, it was one of the big, um, I can't remember which century, how many years, 600 years, I can't remember, of, of, the, of the King James Version when it was first published. And, and I noticed that on Radio 4, over a couple of days or so, they were reading the whole of the old King James Bible. And so every so often I used to tune in when I was in my car and you'd hear this extract. And they would choose different people to read different extracts in the old King James Version. I, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was great. And they didn't just choose Christians. They chose all types of people. And one day I was in my car and they were reading the extract of 
Abraham, when God told him to take his son Isaac up on a mountain and sacrifice himself. And I was listening, and they, they picked a Jewish, a liberal Jewish man. He wasn't a religious Jew, but he was uh, brought up as a Jew from a Jewish blood family. And I think he was in the media or the arts. And he read the story of Abraham being prepared to sacrifice his child Isaac. And having read it, as, as they did, whenever they read it, they'd have a little reflection on it. He said, oh, this was all, he said, I love the God of the Old Testament. I thought, praise the Lord. But then the next thing he said was, he is, he is like, a, he is, well, he said, when I was a kid, I loved the God of the Old Testament because he's terrifying. He said, when I, when I re read, heard the stories as a young boy of the Old Testament, the things he got up to and the terrifying stories, he said it was so exciting and none more terrifying than this. When, when we heard that God would tell a father to sacrifice his own child, to kill his own son. I mean, what sort of God goes around telling people to kill and sacrifice their children? And I thought to myself, you haven't got a clue. And then I realized that some of these other books, Richard Dawkins, also say that God is a child abuser because he told Abraham to sacrifice his son. Well, for me, the story of the sacrifice of Isaac is one of the most beautiful, incredible stories and accounts in the whole of the Bible. In fact, Paul speaks about it, and James speaks about it as one of the pinnacles of both God and human action. Again, there's been a twist here. You see, if you know the story, you will know that God said to Abraham, in Isaac will your seed come. And through Isaac, I will multiply and bless all the families. Now, Abraham, in the beginning of his life, had trust issues with God. And he thought, well, when is this child? And he waited and he waited. He had to wait 25 years for Isaac to come. And during that period, he lost trust in God. He thought, God's given up or God's not able to do it. And maybe I'm meant to sort this out. And he didn't trust God. What did he have? His Ishmael. But finally... When Isaac came, Abraham had grown to finally trust God and the trust that he had of God and his promises in his word. So that when God said to Abraham, take your son up onto the mountain and sacrifice him, Abraham trusted God's promise that Isaac, because he was only a young boy then, he wasn't married, that Isaac would have children, that through Isaac would his line continue. Abraham said to himself, well, even if I kill Isaac, you'll just have to raise him from the dead, God, because in Isaac you promised would be my seed. So he said to his servant as he took Isaac up, he said, I and the boy will be back. And he meant it. And when his son Isaac said, where's the sacrifice? He said, Jehovah Jireh, God will provide. In fact, when you read in Hebrews chapter 11, Faith's Hall of Fame, about Abraham, it says that Abraham believed that God was even able to raise his son back from the dead. A type of faith. So Abraham believed in the resurrection God. And so this is a story of incredible trust, incredible faith in God's promise. There was never any doubt that Isaac wouldn't be returned. God decided to give them a, 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 a ram in a thicket 
But even if he had slain Isaac, God would have raised Isaac from the dead. What an incredible story of believing God right through to death, even being able to believe that God would raise him from the dead. This was an amazing one-off thing that God gave to Abraham. Uh, He never said this to anybody else because he never said to somebody else, in Isaac will be your seed, so that Abraham could know that the child's life was not ultimately in danger. This brings me now to something that's a bit more general, that we find ourselves under attack as Christians again and again and again. And this is the law of Moses. So often, as Christians, we are attacked because it's like, well, have you read in the law of Moses what they do? It's crazy if a woman is having her period, she's considered unclean. I mean, what sort of God thinks that a woman is unclean just because she's having a natural period? That's like taboo, weird stuff, and all these things. Well, I'm going to read a letter that was written to a a Jewish radio talk show host, Dr. Laura Schlesinger. And she was Jewish, and she was a talk show host, like an agony aunt. And someone wrote her a letter regarding the Old Testament. I think you will see in it the sort of criticisms that we often find against the law. Dear Dr. Laura, thank you for doing so much to educate people regarding God's law. I have learned a great deal from your show and try to share that knowledge with as many people as I can. When someone tries to defend the homosexual lifestyle, for example, I simply remind them that Leviticus 18, verse 22, clearly states it to be an abomination. End of debate. I do need some advice from you, however, regarding some other elements of God's laws and how to follow them. In Leviticus 25.44, it states that I may possess slaves, both male and female, provided they are purchased from neighboring nations. A friend of mine claims that this applies to Mexicans, but not Canadians. Can you clarify why I can't own Canadians? I would like to, I would like to sell my daughter into slavery, as sanctioned in Exodus 21.7. In this day and age, what do you think? What would be a fair price for her? Three, I know that I am allowed no contact with a woman while she is in her period of menstrual unseemliness, Leviticus 15, 19. The problem is, how do I tell? I've tried asking, but most women take offense. When I burn a bull on the altar as a sacrifice, I know it creates a pleasing odor for the Lord, Leviticus 1, 9. The problem is my neighbors. They claim the odor is not pleasing to them. Should I smite them? Five, I have a neighbor who insists on working on the Sabbath. Exodus 35, 2 clearly states he should be put to death. Am I morally obliged to kill him myself, or should I ask the police to do it? Six, a friend of mine feels that even though eating shellfish is an abomination, Leviticus 11:10, it's a lesser abomination than homosexuality. I don't agree. Can you settle this? Are there different degrees of abomination? Seven, Leviticus 21.20 states that I may not approach the altar of God if I have a defect in my sight. I have to admit, I use reading glasses. Does my vision have to be 20-20 or is there some wiggle room here? Most of my friends get their hair trimmed, including the hair around their temples, even though this is expressly forbidden in Leviticus 19.27. How should they die? 
My uncle has a farm. He violates Leviticus 19 verse 19 by planting two different crops in the same field. As does my wife by wearing garments made of two different kinds of thread, cotton, polyester, blend. He also tends to curse and blaspheme a lot. Is it really necessary that we go to all the trouble of getting the whole town together to stone them? Couldn't we just burn them to death at a private family affair like we do with people who sleep with their in-laws? Leviticus 20.14. I know you've studied these matters extensively and thus enjoy considerable experience in such matters, so I'm confident that you can help. Thank you again for reminding us that God's word is eternal and unchanging. Your adoring fan. Well, how would you begin to answer such questions like that? Because... Often, as people come to us, that's what they hit you with. And many of them think that there's no answer, that there's no response. Well, the first thing we have to do is sit back and understand what we're talking about. We are talking about the Old Testament. We looked at that a couple of, year, a couple of uh, sessions ago. But we are people of the... Remember that. Before I answer some of these questions, remember that. When someone comes to you and starts hitting you and treating you as if you're an Old Testament believer, just tell them, well, wait, whoa, whoa, wait a second. In the Bible, there's an Old Testament and a New Testament, and I am a New Testament believer. So you should be talking to me about turning the other cheek, about loving your enemy. Uh, you, you ought to be asking me, what would Jesus do? And of course, we have that wonderful picture of Jesus with the woman caught in adultery and they came up to him and said hey you're a believer Jesus the Old Testament says that you should stone the adulterer so what do you say they asked him the same questions they tried to get him with the Old Testament too like they try and get us and what did Jesus do well we might come back to that but he basically said you who can you without sin cast the first stone in other words, he says, okay, which one of you is holy enough to apply these laws? None of them were. The only person who was holy enough to apply that law was himself. And he didn't. And he said to the woman, go your way. Go, go, go your way. I do not condemn you. But he didn't stop there. He said, sin no more. He carried that sin on the cross. But he still understood that it was sin. And so we are New Testament believers. We're not Old Testament believers. There's an Old Covenant and a New Covenant. So remember that. If you don't remember anything else, remember that you are judged by the New Testament. Okay? Now, when we go back, we have to understand the law of Moses, what it was. Now, I've written a book, a commentary on Galatians. And that goes very much into depth in what the New Testament is and what the Old Testament is. And I have a whole section in Galatians on the law. Because in the book of Galatians, Paul spends a lot of time talking about what the law was, what it did, and why it was given. And Paul tells us that the law was a temporary measure for a wicked, unbelieving people. A temporary measure for a wicked and unbelieving people. After all, for um, 340 years since the time of Abraham, the Jewish people have walked with God without any laws, without any of these things. How did they walk with God? By faith in his promises. Isaac had a promise. Jacob had a promise. Joseph had a dream promise. They all had promises. Even the children of Israel brought out of Exodus were given a promise, a whole land that was promised. 
And uh, they, they didn't, if, if you walk in the promise and with faith like Abraham, you don't need the law. But the children of Israel were wicked and constantly tested God in the wilderness, as we see in Hebrews chapter 3. And in the end, the law came. And Paul says this in Galatians. He says, the law was like a teacher, a guardian, or like a nanny. For a young child, this is the teaching of Galatians, in order to bring them up to the place where they will come to adult maturity. And that's when Christ came. So the law was temporary. It was until Christ came. It wasn't for all time. That's why we as Christians are no longer under the law. Why? Because Jesus has come and the law has now no function in the Christian life. The law was not God's final word. In fact, in the law, God tolerated a lot of what was going on. I mean, do you remember when they went to Jesus and they said to Jesus, um, uh, is it lawful to divorce? And Jesus said, Moses gave you divorce laws because of the hardness of your heart. But it was not so in the beginning. In other words, Jesus went back before the law to Genesis and said, this is the way it was in the beginning. A man and a woman shall leave their parents and come together and be one flesh. So we see that the law came and dealt with people right where they are. And some laws were there because of the hardness of the hearts of people that were being de- dealing with. So Jesus said, the law is not always God's best provision. The law was a tutor or a nanny to keep in check an immature, unruly people until they were ready for the maturity of God's final message in Jesus. Remember Hebrews? In former times, God has spoken to you through the prophets, but now he speaks to you through his own son. But having said that, that doesn't mean that the law was defective. The law wasn't defective at all. In fact, what we see in the law is a picture of God's great holiness and justice. You know, the New Testament makes it plain that if any one of us was to be judged by the law, we would be found guilty. In fact, God's law that was given through Moses was perfect. Perfect in holiness, perfect in its expression, even though it was only temporary. And so some of the things that we see in the law what we might call the harshness, is actually a revelation of God's holiness and justice. I mean, I am glad that I do not live in the, under the Old Testament law. And uh, if, you th- if you think that anybody could stand under the Old Testament law, you're wrong. And so in the Old Testament law, though there's sacrifice for sin, there is also a, a, a strong revelation that sin will not be tolerated by God. He won't tolerate sin. Unatoned sin will not be tolerated. But let's have a look at, um, at, at some of these things that, that people talk about um, in, in, in the law. Well, the first thing I, w- I want to talk about in the law, and as many things we could talk about, is... Some of the strange things that take place, such as don't boil a kid in the, in the milk of its mother, no tattoos, strange food laws that we have, food that is kosher and food that is not, 
cleanliness laws, um, odd clothing commandments, how to trim your beard, laws and laws and laws, some of them that can be quite odd to us, like the idea that you can be unclean if you touch a dead body, or you can be unclean if you touch a woman that's going through a menstrual period, or things like this. Now, I just want to give you a brief survey because of time here, but when we see the laws that were brought into Israel, one of the main reasons that the law came was to protect Israel from the influence of other nations like the Canaanites, who were idolatrous, and who were engaged in all manner of sexual immorality. Until Jesus came with the full revelation, the law was a tutor, a guardian, to protect. It was like a protective custody of the Israel nation so that they would not be contaminated by all the evil, immoral, immorality, and false religion in the nations around them. And so the laws of God covered every area of life to show that God was part of every area of life. And so there were two types of purity and impurity laws, moral and ceremonial, to remind people about the holiness of God and that they were a separate people. They weren't a people among the nations. They were a specially chosen priestly nation. And so, for example, when you talk about the kosher food, and, uh, and you look at the different food that they could eat and they couldn't eat. This is the thing, when you look at the law, God wanted to make sure that there was a purity and a separation in the mindset of his people. And so, for example, even with the food laws, the things that you could eat and the things that you couldn't eat, they're not random at all. In fact, when you look at those sections of scripture, it takes us right back to Genesis. Because in Genesis 1, when God created the world, he created three spheres in the world. Land, water, and air. And then when you look at the animals that God created, he created animals in the sea, animals on the land, and animals in the air. And so when you come to see the food that the Israelites could eat or not eat, you will find that the animals that were purely of the sea or purely of the land or purely of the air, you could eat. And so, for example, in the water, anything that has scales that you, you, you can eat. Why? They are clearly fish, clearly there in the sea to swim in the sea. But where you find some of the other animals that sometimes go in the sea that you can't eat, you'll find that they don't have scales. There's something about those animals where they are sort of like on the borders of a sea creature. They have legs, or they can walk around, or they can come out. And so you notice that prawns, for example, don't have fins. And so what God is saying, I only want you to eat the purest of the purest of sea animals. They must have scales. Um, also, if you look at those that fly in the air, if you look at um, uh, what you can eat, if you look at the insects, you're allowed to eat insects that are land insects. In other words, if they hop on the ground, that's fine. If they have four, uh, if they have, uh, four legs. But if you have a flying insect that also has many legs, you can't eat it. Why? Because it's neither an air creature or a land creature. It's a bit of both. 
The same with animals that chew the cud and don't and have the hooves. You look, you will find that the clear animals that are land animals, the clear insects that are, in, that are land insects, or the clear animals that, that fly in the air, the birds, or the insects that fly, those clear animals that fit clearly into land, water, and air, those are the ones that they can eat. Also, the animals that the Israelites couldn't eat were animals that fed on other animals. Now, the idea that blood being sacred, the idea that a carrion or, or an eagle or, 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 or something that eats another animal, again, because of the importance of life and death, these things were banned. So there, there was in the idea of their mindset, clear, pure understanding of holiness. We also find in such things as birth, sexuality, and death, there was a lot of laws around these things. And you might think that some of them are strange, but the reason that those laws were there was because these things were blurred in the other nations. So life and death and sexuality in the Canaanite religions, they had, they had child sacrifice and infant sacrifice. They had prostitution and sexual uh, acts in worship in their temples. They had human sacrifice. And so in the other uh, nations around Israel, you had all this mixing of sexuality. There was no purity in sex. Uh, women were abused and used as prostitutes. So were men. Uh, uh, men having prostitutes with men and, and, and the death and the sacrifice and religion. The whole thing, death, life, birth, sex, was just one mishmash of idolatrous evil. So in keeping Israel separate until Jesus came, we find that often things to do with birth are holy, and they are made to be holy and treated holy because life, things of life, when you read the Old Testament and the law, things of life and birth are very holy, and there's strict rules to keep that in people's mind as holy. Death also is seen as something very important. Lines can't be blurred. Also, sexuality, so not only um, the time of, of, of a woman's uh, going through a monthly cycle, but also even semen emissions could make people unclean. There was clear distinction between life and death. That's why you didn't boil a uh, kid in its mother's milk. It's inappropriate. It's the mixing of life and death and birth. And, and so when you look at many of these rituals and many of these what's clean and what's, what's not clean, look at it and realize that God is keeping things pure, separate. Even so that when you go to a field, you don't plant the same. You plant one. Even in your clothes, you have one material. You might think it's crazy, but all of this was to keep Israel protected and separate and to understand the different important holy parts of life and not to be mixed up like the rest uh, of the nations. And then we have other things that, we, that are criticized in the law, such as slavery. I read a bit about slavery. Do you know the, <coughs> the Old Testament law does not teach slavery? There is no such concept of slavery in the law of Moses. In fact, I was looking in my ESV version at some of the passages, and even when I turned to a section on slavery, it said next to the word slavery in the, mar mar in the margin, should be translated servanthood. 
You see, when we think of slavery, slavery, or when I think of slavery, I immediately think of the Roman slaves, where the slaves were, they weren't even treated as humans. They had no rights, nothing. They were the property of the masters. Or I think of the slaves in the cotton fields of America and how, again, they were brutalized and treated as, as inhuman. But there's no such concept of that type of slavery in the law. If you read it, you'll see. It's better spoken to of as servanthood. Servanthood. In fact, servanthood, not slavery, was put into the Old Testament law to ensure that, po- that poverty was dealt with. So you find that if a family couldn't feed its children, their children could go into service in another family. Every, every time somebody became a servant in someone's house, they did it for a seven-year contract. They even had con- employment contracts in the Old Testament. Every seven years, your servant, what they call slaves, your servant would be freed. Every 50 years as well, if it fell on a 50 years, they would be freed. And not only would the servant be freed after seven years, but they would have all their debts cancelled. And so servanthood was to ensure that families did not go into abject poverty that they did not end up being actual slaves, but there was a, a holding net for families that were in ruin or people that were in debt where they could work out their service in another family or another household. And even in that household, they had rights, they had justice. Uh, the master couldn't just take a woman slave and sleep with her. He would have to marry her. And so we see something more in the Old Testament, like Victorian Britain, where somebody might have a, have, have a big family and no money. And so what do they do? Well, they'll send their children off to work in the, the manor or go and work in service. And so the idea of slavery in the Old Testament is absolutely um, uh, nonsense. It's, sim- it's simply not there. In fact, the Bible says that when, when God gave these laws, he was hoping that, w- that these would never be there because there would never be poverty. He was saying, hopefully you'll be prospered in the land of plenty and you won't need to resort to this servanthood. But if not, here are the ways to deal with the poor. And so, um, so it, doesn't, it doesn't have slavery. So I could look at some other things, but I don't have time. What I'm trying to say, and I just gave you a few examples to think about, is that when we look at the God of the Old Testament, We have to understand that the people he was dealing with had not yet matured. So, for example, in Genesis, it was one husband, one wife. In the New Testament, one husband, one wife. But you might say, well, well, some of those men of God in the Old Testament had many wives. Does that mean that God believes that a man should have many wives? No, of course not. He tolerated it, but it wasn't his best. You say, oh, well, there was divorce in the time of Moses. Does that mean that God granted divorce? And and Jesus said, it was given to you because of your immaturity and your hardness of heart. But it was not so in the beginning. So the Old Testament law came in for a, a temporary period to deal with a backward and rebellious nation to keep them separated under God until the time came when the new covenant came. And when the new covenant came, they would finally be released to walk in the fullness 
of God's provision. God was teaching people. You know, when you go to school in the first grade, you don't get taught your A-levels, do you? You take a child and you say, where are they? And then you teach them. And each year they go up a grade. Each year they're taught more until you say, congratulations, you've got your A-levels, you've completed your secondary education. And in the Old Testament, that's exactly what was happening. Right at the beginning, it was set at the top. But then, with the fall, God said, oh, look at this situation. Okay, I'm going to have to start dealing with you. And Abraham walked by faith without the law. But then the children of Israel rejected faith, rejected the promises of God. So God said, right, okay, I'm going to have to discipline you. I'm going to have to train you. I'm going to have to teach you. I'm going to have to prepare you. And then when Jesus came, the new covenant came. If anybody does ask you about the law and you don't know how to answer, I always say this. Go back to the woman caught in adultery and just say, well, let's see how Jesus would deal with some of the things that you're talking about. First of all, he made all foods clean. Secondly, when somebody was told to be punished with the punishment of the law of Moses, he refused to do it. Yet he didn't say that the woman was righteous. He said, sin no more. He carried all those punishments of the law. He carried every punishment that's in. Every punishment you see in the law, Jesus carried on the cross. And if we were all to be punished by the law without Christ, not one of us would survive. We are all guilty and have fallen short of the standards of the law. That's why none of us can, can uh, throw the first stone. Because if you throw a stone at me to judge me by the law, I'll throw one at you because we're both guilty. The only person not guilty was Jesus. And so that's a beautiful picture of how Jesus dealt with the Old Testament and why we're in the New Covenant. Anyway, these are just a few thoughts to throw you out. If you're interested in any of this, again, I say the book is God a Moral Monster by Paul Copan is where you need to go in your further study. Next week... We'll be starting a new series on how to practically live in the Spirit and being filled with the Spirit and the principles of the Spirit that God has given to us that very few people live in the power of starting next Sunday. God bless you.